You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 31st of January. And as the UK government bans disposable vapes to discourage children from picking up the habit, we looked at whether it's a law we should be replicating here in the UAE. We looked at the potential health benefits of a ban with tobacco researcher Andrea Jabari-Leinberger. She's from New York University, Abu Dhabi. And we also looked at the environmental benefits of a potential ban. That was with sustainability campaigner Tatiana Antonelli. Meanwhile, former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan has been sentenced twice in the last two days to more than a decade in prison on both occasions. That is, of course, just ahead of an election in the country. So what does this mean for Pakistani politics? We found out with lawyer Azama Malik. And with Arab health going on just down the road in the Dubai World Trade Center, we had a big focus on brain health because Elon Musk has also announced his neurotechnology company has successfully implanted a brain chip into a human. Now, doctors at Abu Dhabi's Cleveland Clinic say they're already helping Parkinson's patients with brain stimulation implants. And we found out more about that with the neurosurgeon, Dr. Tanmoy Mighty. Meanwhile, scientists have made several amazing breakthroughs recently in the treatment and diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Neuroradiologist Dr. Emil McSweeney explained why that early detection is so important. And Chris McCarty brought us up to date with all the latest sporting action. My goodness me, I have already set the cat among the pigeons this morning talking about whether or not disposable vapes ought to be banned in this country. We, we're talking about it because the British government has decided to ban them. It's all part of plans to tackle the rising number of young people who are taking up vaping. Uh, basically, they're, they're going to introduce measures that will prevent the devices being marketed at children. They're also going to target underage sales And this is all despite the fact that it is already illegal to sell them to children under 18 in the UK. But the problem is, is that the especially these disposable ones, they're they're packaged almost like sweeties. Um, If you think about it, when you go to a newsagent or or the mini mart or or any sort of the the, um, any of the supermarkets here, you, you go to the counter and behind the counter are the tobacco products, including these vaping um, items And then there's also like the sweeties and chewing gum and stuff. And they're all in really similar packaging. So you can, you know, and they're designed to sort of catch you as you're leaving. You know, it's a sort of impulse purchase. And certainly that it has actually been encouraging more children to take it up. And I mean, at least in the UK, and they've got the figures to show it. Um, they There's a, an action on smoking and health charity called ASH. And that suggests that 7.6% of 11 to 17 year olds now vape regularly. Um, and that is up from 4.1% in 2020. So I'm not very good at maths, but it's sort of doubled in three years. I mean, it's 2024 now, but only just so doubled in, in three years. And in December, the World Health Organization has jumped on the bandwagon. They've urged all governments to ban the sale of vapes or to impose measures that would make them less appealing. Australia, France, Germany, New Zealand all announced similar plans. Only New Zealand so far have imposed them. Um, and so what do you think? I mean, I'm all, I'm all for it. I mean, I just, I just think that <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just all for the, the protection of the children. Like, ultimately... I don't think anyone needs to vape. I don't think you're necessarily impinging on anyone's human rights by telling them, you know, making it less available to them. Um, ultimately, if they're under 18, they shouldn't be sold these products. They shouldn't be marketed to them. I, for me, it's pretty cut and dried. I'm just like, yeah, bring it on. Stop them. Um, for other people who are a bit more, um, well, for example, in the United Kingdom, the Conservative Party, who are sort of more right-leaning there, they say it's unconservative to ban it because they're a bit more... Um, well, I suppose they just support people's uh, freedom of will and they think that that should be protected maybe over their health. Obviously, these companies, the vaping companies, are also making a fortune out of it. So it's very good business for those vaping companies. And I imagine in um, countries in Europe, for example, they've probably got quite a big lobbying 
organisation behind it. Anyway, lots to think about, lots to talk about. Simple questions. Should they be banned? If not, why not? Um, joining me now to discuss the story is an expert. Andrea Yabari leinberger is Assistant Director of Tobacco Research at New York University Abu Dhabi. Joins me on the line. Good morning to you. Thank you so much for joining me, Andrea. Is vaping a big deal in this country? Let's start with that. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, vaping j- just became uh, legally available on the market. What was it in 2019? And I think since then, I think we have seen a great uh, proliferation of vape shops throughout the throughout the country, as well as um, online marketing of vapes. So, I think people have um, taken to it. Um, you know, we have some data from uh, various research uh, within the country to show that it, it, it is um, quite a popular product. How about those figures for children? Do we have any sense of whether underage teenagers are using these products? I don't think we have any official data on that just yet. Um, what we do know, um, some research that came out of, uh, out of some local universities here um, showed that one in five university students vape. Um, so again, that's, these are 18s and above, but you, know, you can maybe backtrack and think that perhaps they had their first exposures when they were younger. Um, We also see in some of the research coming out of our center that um, younger people tend to be the ones who vape um, more frequently than, um, say, older adults. So, again, kind of the same trends. You have to wonder exactly when did they have their first exposure to vaping. Certainly, whenever I see packs of teenagers, um, I'd say usually about a third of them are are fiddling with something in their hands and, and, you know, occasionally putting it to their lips. You know, I think they're basically a third of them are more or less vaping. Um, There does seem to be a sort of, I described it on The Breakfast Show, a sort of epidemic of of fiddling items, um, which I think people use when they maybe have social anxiety. And of course, teenagers uh, probably, you know, generalizing here, but might feel awkward in social situations um, and therefore might find something like a disposable vape, a sort of a, a decent accessory or sort of crutch in some ways. Um, have have studies been done into into why people are adopting it so wholeheartedly? Is it definitely seen as a as a healthier version of smoking? Well, so I think um, you know I think that's a, that's an interesting question because I think when you look at for individuals who already use tobacco products, so people who already have smoked cigarettes or other other tobacco products. Um, there are studies, or there is some um, pretty good evidence to show that switching to e-cigarettes can help people quit using combustible tobacco um, for at least six months or longer. So there is some pretty definitive evidence for people who already use tobacco. We are, however, seeing, and and the ASH report actually really did um, show some pretty stark figures that people who don't, who have never used tobacco, are starting to take up vaping, um, and that those trends, both for adults and for for young people, have been on the rise um, in the UK, for example. So, while vaping might be better for you in inverted commas than smoking, is it still bad for you? Yeah, I mean, I can say, you know, it's it's not without harms. And you also have to think about it. It still contains nicotine. Um, and oftentimes, um, both in the market here, as well as in the market in the UK, um, maybe with some of the unregulated products, you can find vapes and particularly these disposable vapes that contain higher levels of nicotine and a lot of a lot of puffs. So they have more puffs per Per package. Um, so in the end, um, you know, if people are using these products with higher levels of nicotine and more puffs, um, there's more of a chance that they'll become addicted. So the World Health Organization thinks they should be banned. Britain is banning them. Australia, France, Germany and New Zealand all announcing similar plans. Do you think it should be implemented here as well? I think we should take a very hard look at um, the, at the products on the market. I I think that um, the moves in the UK are very strongly based in the evidence that shows that 
these products in particular. And just as a reminder, this is not banning all vapes. This is only banning the disposable vapes, the ones that tend to be more attractive to young people. As you were saying earlier, they kind of look like sweets. Um, they're sold right next to the sweets in the shops and things. And so um, trying to minimize the appeal to young people in particular um, is, is a good thing, I think. I think we should be protecting the health of our young people. Do you think that a ban would be sort of palatable in this country? Because, I mean, the reason why I ask you is because you're very much at the forefront of tobacco research in this country. So you probably have more access to, for example, health ministry officials and things like that. Do you think there would be any appetite for it? I think if we if we have a compelling argument with the evidence, I think if we can show that, and again, not all vapes would go away. Um, you would still be able to purchase um, your um, uh, refillable vapes um, I think also um, the argument about uh, the disposable vapes are not necessarily uh, friendly to our environment is another um, big uh, thing to consider when, when discussing this um, as, a, as a policy approach. So, yeah. I mean, I have to say, I, I, I mean, I'd be really interested if anyone wants to get in touch with an argument for why they shouldn't be banned because for me it, it's pretty cut and dried you know we just heard thank you so much by the way Andrea Jabari Leinberger there assistant director of tobacco research from New York University Abu Dhabi thank you very much indeed for your time I mean you would expect in many ways Andrea um, to be supportive of um, you know reducing the exposure that people and young people especially have to these products but I can't think of an argument for why we wouldn't ban them you know like why why not Get in touch. I'd love to know if you disagree with me. Uh, 4001, or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 uh, Really has got people talking. Ian Plumley feels very strongly um, that there is an epidemic of vaping in Dubai's schools. Um, ultimately, um, the kids are making substitutes for it with these products. They're putting other products in, um, in suggests. And, that, and he thinks it really is a, a problem with teenagers. Um, really interesting. Bassam, thank you for your message. Message. Smoking generally should be banned, Bassam says, especially vaping. A lot of people here in the UAE believe it's not smoking and therefore they actually use it in closed areas like restaurants. Um, Bassam thinks the UAE government should take really serious action against this. Most smokers, I believe, started by trying as it looks cool in their view and it's actually healthier than smoking, especially for young people. To make a long story short, yes, it should be banned, but we should also be proactive and educate children as to why it is not healthy to use them. Uh, loving everyone's comment. Welcome back to the show. And we are discussing the banning of disposable vapes on the show today. That is as the British government has made the call as part of their plans to tackle the rising number of young people who are taking up the practice. It's thought that the sort of colourful packaging on, on disposable vapes are a key driver as to why so many young people are actually picking up the habit. And we're discussing whether or not the UAE should replicate that ban. For health reasons, lots of people are getting in touch on 4001. Emma's got in touch saying, I remember this huge campaign against smoking cigarettes and then vapes came out with all these flavours and attractive of colours. And who are they targeting if not kids? It's ridiculous that there's no campaign to ban these and to protect the children. Not to mention the chewing nicotine gum on the sort of toy-like boxes. It seems to me that no one cares about the kids' health. And there have been kids uh, dying from vaping, but people don't seem to be taking uh, or paying attention to that either. Uh, strong words there from M. I mean, that's one side of the story with these disposable vapes, you know, the health side. But there's also an environmental impact to the disposable nature of these devices. And environmental campaigner Tatiana Antonelli, who's the founder of the social action group Goombook, says there is a lack of awareness about how damaging they can be if they're incorrectly disposed. Have a listen to this. Uh, she spoke to uh, producer Jennifer Crichton in the last few hours. 
they represent a mini electronic, right? These are electrical items that have batteries and have circuit boards and precious metals. And there's even, you know, lithium inside. So these materials should be reused. And at the moment, there is zero awareness, zero education to the consumer on how to dispose of these items. So at the moment, what happens is if we're lucky, yes, they go to a bin. But a lot of people just throw them. So when we do a, a cleanup, yes, we find cigarette butts, we find some plastic, and then we find these electrical items. And it's more and more. I would say two years ago, we would find a few. And what is scary is that we've seen actually an increase in these items in our cleanups, both in the beach or in the desert and in other environments. So this is a problem. And it's a shame because... The wastage of these precious metals is sad. If you think about all the effort going to actually extract these precious metals and, and at the same time, all the social impact, the environmental disaster of mining. And you think, oh, oh gosh, I'm, uh, so, so much is going into these little electronic items just to be thrown. It's sad and it's dangerous for our health, for nature. It's a big deal. You mentioned cigarette butts there, and I know you do a lot of cleanups that involve cleaning up cigarette butts. Do you think that there's a a sort of disconnect when it comes to smoking, where these have always been seen as something that's almost separate to the littering problem? If you're smoking, it's it's something that you just toss and you don't put in the bin because of the the fact that they've been on fire, I guess, would have been the original deterrent. But is there a sort of disconnect between smoking and how we discard of smoking apparatus? Absolutely. I mean, even in films and movies, when you see people smoking, and you see less of them, but still, when you see them smoking, usually they just toss the cigarette somewhere and and it ends up on the floor or behind a tree. And no one really reacts to that because mainly we think that that's fiber and it's going to decompose. There's a general belief that it's paper with inside some cotton. But actually, that's plastic. 95% of that cigarette butt is actually plastic. Uh, and we consider it a single-use plastic. So you use it for just once and then you should take care of it. You should dispose of it properly because the impact is, is terrible. One cigarette butt can pollute up to 5,000 liters of water with more than 7,000 chemicals. And I used to be a smoker and I never knew this. Nobody ever told me. I knew that it was my choice to smoke and could damage my health. But nobody ever told me until today, you will never find a packet of cigarettes that tells you that you shouldn't toss it. You shouldn't toss the cigarette butt and it's harmful to the environment. So Yes, I think there is a gap here that uh, definitely needs to be filled. We need more awareness, more education. This is not about the choice you make as a person uh, in terms of, you know, smoking, not smoking. It's do it responsibly. And in the whole new market of vapes and, and electronic cigarettes, you have also those durable electronic that you can use for years and that you recharge and you actually add and change the cigarette, the filter actually uh, in it. And the other day I was with a friend and, and, uh, and I was asking him, what do you do with that filter when you're done smoking it? Oh, I just throw it. Like, do you know what's inside? It's like, uh, yeah, it's just tobacco. And, and, and I'm like, no, there's actually a tiny, very thin metal wire inside. And he looked at me like I was crazy. So in front of me, he actually broke the filter to show me that there wasn't anything. And he was so surprised when he found the wire. And again, that is tossed in the waste and we lose precious metals. It's, it's a whole narrative that needs to change around this, this industry. So, I mean, we're seeing a number of countries now banning single-use vapes and, and disposable vapes. For a number of reasons, would a ban be something that you would like to see? And until that happens, or if that was not to happen, how should people be disposing of them safely? Because it does seem that there's a a knowledge gap here. Listen, I think it's actually an opportunity, an opportunity for the manufacturers to, you know, step up 
and engage with their consumers. So first, create that awareness that's uh, missing and at the same time, empowering them to do the right thing. I would like to see in every single shop that sells these items, a bin, a specific bin that allows me to bring back the vapes that I don't need anymore to work on recycling and specifically on circular economy. We really need to change the way we design the use of anything we utilize on a daily basis. And it goes from the chair, from the car, from the bag, from the clothing, all the way down to the way you smoke, for example. Banning, I don't know if it's the right thing to do, but definitely putting more regulation around it and making sure that we don't waste anymore because the plastic can be recycled, the metals can be recycled, and we bring them back into a circular economy. We're seeing a lot of discussion at the moment here about the banning of single-use plastic bags. We've seen a real change in attitude towards plastic bags and to people carrying bags with them to the supermarket. We're talking a lot about single-use plastic bottles. We're seeing trends for Stanley cups left, right and centre. What do you think we do to make people realise that their smoking habit is also something that they need to consider from an environmental perspective? That's a very good question. Well, I think, again, we need to work on two fronts. It's always good to to create more awareness, more more visuals. So I think going back to what we have on the cigarette packs to actually show a picture of what happens to, to these things. But I think we need to go really, really deep into education. These topics need to be identified and elaborated in schools, in offices. When we talk about, you know, health and well-being, we should talk about these things. When we talk about sustainability, going green, we should talk about these things. It needs to become part of what we talk on a general basis. It shouldn't be the special thing. Oh, I heard today on the radio about this and then never again. No, it needs to be something that we are educated on a, on a constant basis. I mean, today, when you talk about special products that we used in the 80s that were so bad, today nobody would even think about using those. They don't exist anymore. Why? Because we've been educated over and over and over. And I, I think this is what we need. And when we talk about education, I really want to, 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 to say it's not about youth only. It's about everyone. Everyone needs to understand this. We need to, to pass the message within the community. And, and it's not pointing the fingers. It's really about helping each other, understanding what can we do. Instead of talking about damages and, and the challenges, let's actually look at this as an opportunity. Recycling this can actually create economical and financial opportunities, create jobs. So why not? Tatiana Antonelli there, environmental campaigner and the founder of the social action group Goombook. Would love to get your views on this. Are you a disposable vape smoker? Uh, do you worry about the impact that your habit has on the environment? Do you worry when you go to buy your disposable vapes? Do you worry that they look a bit like sweeties and that they might be appealing to children? Hello there. Welcome back to the agenda. Right. It's time for us to turn our attention to international news stories in particular. I mean, this is a big one. The former prime minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, sentenced to 10 years in jail, allegedly for leaking state secrets. Um, you can't ignore the fact, though, that this trial is taking place um, or took place during an election year. It was a closed court case, the latest in a string of legal battles that the embattled former prime minister is facing. And, yeah, those elections scheduled for February the 8th. Uh, Imran Khan obviously won't be able to contest due to his previous conviction. And his party are drawing attention to that, saying that they're going to challenge the decision that the case is a sham. Joining me now to tell us a little bit more about how it feels on the ground, basically, is Azama Malik. He is a lawyer in Pakistan. Joining me on the line, Azama, thank you so much for your time. I mean, this is just the latest in a long sort of list of, of legal issues for the former PM, isn't it? Yes, Georgia, and uh, just to add to this, um, just today he has been convicted in another case for 14 years, 14-year imprisonment. Uh, just today, it just happened uh, oh about an hour ago, and uh, 14 years for him and his wife in uh, in the state Tosha uh, Khanna case, which is uh, related to gifts, uh, state gifts that he got while he was prime minister, and he sold off those gifts. Uh, he's been convicted for that, and yesterday, yes, he was convicted for 10 years. Um, 
Uh, so, yeah, the convictions are piling up for him. So, I mean, I, I have to admit, I, I don't know a huge amount about uh, politics in Pakistan. I don't follow it every twist and turn. I have to admit, in much the way as I don't follow the UK uh, politics at every twist and turn at the moment. But you can't help but think that this looks really politically motivated. There is no doubt that the timing of the cases and all these convictions, um, they do make it seem very, very politically motivated. Um, it seems that way. I mean, that does not mean that there isn't a um, some merit in the cases. But nonetheless, um, the fact that they are all happening, all these convictions so close to the elections, um, they do seem to be politically motivated. And this has been a history in this country that... Any time minister falls out with the military, eventually ends up uh, um, having lots of cases against them and getting convicted. We saw that in 2018 with uh, Nawaz Sharif, who was in prison while the elections were happening. And now it's Imran Khan who is in prison and the elections are about to commence. Is Nawaz Sharif likely to win as a consequence of Imran Khan being out of the running? That is very, very likely, especially now that there is no party. Imran Khan's party has been stripped of its symbol. So even if his candidates win, they will win as independent candidates. So, yeah, it is very, very likely that uh, Nawaz Sharif is likely to get seats in the parliament. I mean, it's not necessary that he will form a single, uh, form a government uh, singularly, but in a coalition with other parties, yes, you can. That is, there is likelihood of that. Now, Imran Khan's supporters are unlikely to take this sitting down or lying down. Um, ha- have there been protests on the streets as a consequence of these convictions? Well, there have been very few protests on the streets since last year. There were some last year, very huge protests, but they resulted in a crackdown against um, the party activists and party workers and many of them were jailed or forced to um, leave the party. So now it's more muted. Uh, we don't know what will happen after the elections. There is a possibility that people might come out on the streets, but for now it's mostly been on the internet. And even on the internet, there have been outages. Whenever there is a rally, election rally on the internet, um, internet services are deliberately degraded. So um, there is definitely a crackdown, and uh, the response from the party activists is muted. For now, is there any? I mean, if you were Imran Khan, is there any hope in store for him? You know, could these could these convictions be quashed? Could he find himself outside jail anytime soon? At the moment, it's uh, even if these, you know, these sentences run concurrently, we're, we're not. He's not going to be able to re-enter public life or political life for more than a decade. Uh, that is true, but uh, I think if he looks at Nawaz Sharif's case. That should be a silver lining for him. Five years ago, Nawashri was convicted and disqualified for life. And yet he is back here. So in this country, anything can happen. And that should be hope for Imran Khan. The vagaries of, of Pakistani politics, always interesting, always worth a story, always worth talking about on the radio. Uh, and Azama, always fantastic to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time this morning on the agenda. Azama Malik there, he's an attorney at law in Pakistan, giving us the lowdown on the very latest on the former Prime Minister Imran Khan, uh, sentenced to 14 years in jail in the last uh, hour or so, before that sentenced to 10 years in jail for leaking state secrets. That was yesterday's trial. So they're coming thick and fast uh, for the former PN. We will certainly be keeping an eye on all of those stories. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Okay, so we are focusing on something that's been making headlines over the last 24 hours. It's Elon Musk once again. My goodness, that man is good at self-publicity. You know that he doesn't have PR companies or PR managers at any of his companies. He basically doesn't believe in it. He just does it himself. It's quite impressive. Um, Anyway, his neurotech company, Neuralink, has officially implanted a brain chip into their first human guinea pig. He wrote about it on his social media platform X and he said that the patient in question is recovering well 
And initial results show a promising neuron spike detection. And he's indicated in other messages on the social media platform that the chips would be used to help people who've lost the use of their limbs um, and it'll enable them to control computers directly with their brain. Um, And I mean, it's fair to say that everything that Elon does gets this sort of blaze of publicity. But implanting electronics into the brain actually isn't that unusual. And in fact, in a different way, it is happening here in the UAE. And it's good news for Parkinson's patients specifically, um, because Abu Dhabi's Cleveland Clinic has now successfully carried out 50 brain stimulation implant surgeries. Um, I wanted to find out more about this because, of course, Parkinson's affects so many families around the world. And joining us now on the line to tell us a bit more is neurosurgeon Dr. Tanmoy Mighty from Cleveland Clinic, Abu Dhabi. Sir, thank you very much indeed for joining us. I know it's a busy week with Arab Health going on. Can you tell me, first of all, how these brain stimulation implants actually work? Perfect. Uh, thank you so much. Good morning, everyone, the viewers, the persons who are in line. Uh, it's a great opportunity to be here and to connect with you. So number one, the way it works is different for every disease. So currently, deep brain stimulation surgery is approved for movement disorders such as Parkinson's disease, essential tremor, dystonia. It is also approved for drug resistance and all other treatment resistance epilepsies. So these are the four main indications for deep brain stimulation surgery. There are other indications where it is done in humanitarian ground where the other treatments are not working. For example, for obsessive compulsive disorder, for post stroke pain, to name among others. Some other conditions are like Tourette syndrome, depression, and many other diseases. But as of now, we will like to talk more about the indications where it is primarily USFDA approved, which are Parkinson's disease, essential tremor, dystonia, and epilepsy. Now, how it works, right? That is the main question. So how it works, we tell it is like a neuromodulation. So we use specific frequency, pulse rate, and voltage to change the neural circuit in a way that it functions better. And not only it functions better, it it functions better with time. It improves with time. And what we have seen that this can give a very consistent result and also it is adjustable and reversible. So we can adjust these parameters to a way that we can practice precision and medicine and we can tailor the treatment plan as for individual individual patients. So we bring the treatment to individual level, a combination of medications and deep brain stimulation to improve the quality of life and control the symptoms in a very consistent manner. So if you've already managed to implant uh, 50 of these brain stimulation uh, devices, are you hoping that they could bring relief to many more people going forward? Because it must be a very technical surgery. Yes, it is a very technical surgery and we need a big team, which is available in Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi at this point. So first and most important thing is to choose the patients who will improve from the surgery. So unfortunately, though it is improving the symptoms, it's still not a cure not a permanent cure. So because the disease progresses slowly and we have to keep on adjusting the parameters. So I will tell in a big Parkinson's disease program, one in every 10 patients will need the surgery. So not many, but not really less also. So we select these patients very carefully that generally criteria is the patients are having fluctuations of their symptoms despite medication. For them, medications were initially helpful, later not helpful. They have some tremors, like tremor I call shaking of the hands, which was, which is not responding to medications. They are younger, not very old, and these are our patients, primary patients who are actually have who actually have a active life, active social life, and their quality of life is getting impaired by their symptoms. These are our patients. After that, we check, we do imaging, we do clinical tests, we do a psychological test. 
to make sure they are good candidates for the surgery. And once the surgery is done in this meticulous way, the complication rate is, I will say, less than 1%, not much of complications. We can do a good result consistently if we manage and we, if we stick to the strict protocol. And after the surgery, they have to go for programming sessions that, where we fine-tune the settings as per patient's uh, symptoms and requirement. And then we can get a very good result. Is it unusual that you're able to perform this type of surgery in the UAE or, or, or is it fairly commonplace? You know, it, it, can, you, can you get this, in any, this surgery in any country in the world or is the UAE quite rare? Yes, it can be done in any country in the world, but it needs a little bit of, you know, a multidisciplinary team where we need a movement disorder neurologist, uh, which is like who deals with this kind of specific type of neurological symptoms. We do have a big team uh, uh, like uh, where the movement disorder specialist neurologists are available. We need a team of physical therapists, occupational therapists, psychologists, and advanced uh, neuroradiologists to add to our team. So when all of this is available, then you can do the surgery very safely. We do need some technological advancement. We do need some software and some navigation system. The navigation system is something like a GPS system where you can use that GPS to precisely place your leads in the desired spot without uh, making any error. Generally, in our world, we say that if we do one millimeter error, maybe we are fine. If we are more than two millimeter error, that is 100% going to be wrong. So you can imagine how less is the two millimeter my level of margin. So we have to manage this level of accuracy every time in all the surgeries to ensure good results. So, so far, Tachud, we are able to manage this uh, in our patients. So, so far, they are doing, all of them are doing good. Thanks to God, and and uh, hopefully we will be able to continue and help more, many more patients. You mentioned there that it's one in ten patients are sort of suitable for this type of surgery. Are there more advances coming? Do you see a time when, for example, these stimulation implants could be even more effective? That they could be suitable for more people? Hundred percent. That's a very interesting question and very interesting observation. That's what we are seeing. Because the technology has advanced uh, over, so we uh, this surgery got USFDA approved in 1998. We are doing this surgery from 1980s. We do have experience of 50 years to use this uh, device. And over 50 years, the technology has advanced so much, we can check the brain sensing. Like we can sense the wave from the brain to know during Parkinson's disease what type of waves are common and when we are starting that stimulation, whether we are able to control that waves, we are able to manage based on your activities to manage the current in a way. Say, for example, you don't need same type of uh, setting. Say you are going out or doing an activity actively and versus you are at home and you are relaxing. So based on that, the, the device can detect it and manage the current in a way that it gives you only when it is needed. So there is a lot of sophisticated advancement and which has made our life very easy and can be patient can directly ask us, I too, this is my profession, this is my job profile. I need my um, device to work in this, this, this time. Very important for me. So we can tailor that based on patient's requirement. So as this is happening more and more common and with the imaging advancement, the MRI is much better than how it was 20 years back. So we know particularly where exactly to place and how exactly we can make it better. So more and more patients are getting, uh, and also there is other thing that, you know, the patient education, the knowledge about it, and earlier days people were more scared about it. You know, you talk about a brain surgery, anyone gets scared, right? And then when you see this, okay, your friend got uh, benefit or another person got benefit, and then maybe you may be interested. So we are able to see more and more patients, and many of our current patients are coming from the reference of other patients who got benefit from this surgery. So, so this is also very important, right? So we, we are trying to make a patient support group. We have organized several meetings so that our patients know more about it. 
and they know more about the disease, more about the medications, what they should do in their daily life, and when the surgery can be considered. So that makes it more and more attractive for the patients now. Sir, absolute pleasure to speak to you. It sounds like you're doing amazing work down there uh, at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. You've been listening to the voice there of Dr. Tanmoy Mighty. He is associate staff physician. He's a neurosurgeon with the Neurological Institute at that doctor's surgery um, and hospital, in fact. So thank you very much indeed for your time. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. We're going to continue our focus on medical stories on the programme this morning. Um, Because I think if you live in Dubai, you've probably spotted the fact that we've got thousands of exhibitors and delegates from around the world attending Arab Health at the Dubai World Trade Centre this week. So uh, we've got a bit more of a focus on medicine this week than normal. Uh, But what is great is that there definitely seems to be something of a, a sort of positive trend when it comes to news stories. Um, because we've had loads celebrating medical breakthroughs. I, you know, I follow science stories quite closely and we do, we do them a lot on the agenda. And there's definitely been, I don't know, it feels like there's been more positive stories than, than in my sort of previous journalist career over the years. You know, there's definitely a vibe of positivity. Uh, for example, scientists say they might be one step closer to using a blood test, for example, to screen for Alzheimer's. And there's also been lots of reports about how they're making progress with treatments for the brain disorder. Joining me now to talk through the sort of various breakthroughs is consultant neuroradiologist Dr. Ema McSweeney, who is CEO and Medical Director of Recognition Health. Now, uh, that's based in London, um, but Dr. McSweeney Sweeney is here for Arab Health and joins me on the line, probably from somewhere in the Dubai World Trade Centre or maybe in your hotel. But but Dr. McSweeney, thanks for joining us on the line. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you. Good to have you here. Right. Tell me, what type of breakthroughs are we seeing in the treatment of Alzheimer's? And are they a sort of genuine cause for for positivity? Because it is such a it's such an awful disorder. So, yes, I really do believe 2024 does mark a new era in both the treatment and also the ability to provide an early, accurate diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Because these new treatments that are just beginning to now come on the market, and there are many more that are still in clinical trial, but those treatments are to slow down the progression of disease. So existing treatments don't actually change the progression of disease. They just help those dying brain cells to work a bit more effectively. But the new treatments are designed to try to stop or slow down the death of the brain cells in the first place. And and it's logical. And you mentioned the new blood marker for tau protein, which is one of the important proteins that cause toxicity to the brain cells. And if you have any treatment that is designed to slow further progression of disease, it's logical that you have to be able to start that treatment as early as possible. And in order to be able to start a treatment as early as possible, you have to have very sophisticated biomarkers that will tell you that you have evidence of the disease pathology in the first place. So the two big breakthroughs have to be the presence of biomarkers, which actually detect evidence of disease very, very early on, ideally when symptoms are very mild or ultimately even before symptoms. And then the second thing are treatments, which are actually designed to slow further progression of disease. And obviously, if you're slowing something down, it's going to be most effective if you can give it as early as possible. So there is a huge amount of research and development resulting now in both biomarkers and the first of these new generation treatments beginning to come on the market. So that's really the cause for for the excitement and the cautious optimism for a change in the future of people suffering from this condition. It must be very frightening for people to, to find out that they have Alzheimer's. Do you feel that not enough people come forward because of that fear? Maybe you know, you might start becoming forgetful, but, you know, the last thing you want to hear is that you've got this this awful sentence hanging over you. Yeah, there's actually two key reasons why people don't come forward. The first one, actually, is they don't necessarily recognize 
recognise the early symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And it's most people recognise problems with short-term memory. But it's much more than that. It's really basically just described as difficulties with brain function, your thinking ability. So it's much more than just short-term memory. The other thing is that, yes, of course, uh, you know, there is fear because at this moment in time, apart from sort of like one drug that has now just come on the market in several countries, um, there is no treatment that can slow this down. So this is really why, you know, like 2024 marks this new era where people really do need to start to um, take control and, um, if you like, vote with their decisions, recognize early symptoms, and then either sort of like know about the possibility in certain countries in the world for clinical trials and or and for us at Recognition Health, as soon as the drug comes on the market in the UK, we're super experienced. We've done over 100 sort of like trials and treated over 5,000 people on these types of medications. Um, and it's going to be important to find out where you can access, you can access these treatments because it is going to change the future. Do you think that if people are worried about having Alzheimer's or if they have it in the family, is there anything that you can do to prevent yourself from getting mm -hmm. Alzheimer's? Are there lifestyle choices you can make? Yes, most certainly. And actually, just to add that Alzheimer's disease is a pandemic. So, you know, no pandemics for ages. And then we have COVID and Alzheimer's sort of at the same time. So the first thing is it is very common. The second thing is that um, about 30% of the risk factors for Alzheimer's disease are what we call modifiable. So that means that by sort of like practicing these sort of like healthy things, then you can actually decrease the risk both as a population and as an individual of developing these symptoms early. So those sorts of things, are the same things really as for, for our heart or general physical fitness. So it's diet, low sugar diet, it's having sufficient sleep, it's exercising, that's extremely important, keeping your brain very sort of like active and agile, sort of doing things like maybe playing piano, learning new languages, staying very social. All of these things are very important in terms of slowing or decreasing your risks of developing Alzheimer's disease. Really wonderful. And you have immediately, <laughs> not when you've developed symptoms. Well, exactly. I mean, that's, but those are the type of things that are very encouraging for, for anyone sort of listening to this interview, because I think, I think Alzheimer's is one of those illnesses that really strikes fear into people's hearts. So the idea that there is something that you can proactively do to avoid getting the disorder is so key. Uh, Dr. Ima Maxwini, thank you so much for joining us on the line today. You really are one of the world's foremost experts on Alzheimer's. It's been a great pleasure to catch up with you and to hear about the, the hope that we should all have for sort of both detection and treatment. So thank you very much indeed for your time. I hope you enjoy Arab health uh, and no doubt we will catch up with you again in the future. It is time now for us to take a look at all the latest sporting headlines. Our editor, Chris McCarty, has sent over this report. Take it away, Chris. Good morning, Georgia. Happy Wednesday. No school sports day for me today. No golf. It's a day off in my sporting tour de force this week. It was a late night, staying up to watch all of the football, big night of English Premier League action. And let's start there if we can. Nottingham Forest 1, Arsenal 2. That was the early kickoff. I say early, it kicked off at 11.30 last night, but that was the first one off. And it was a good win in the end for Arsenal. They absolutely dominated. Nerves, though, were starting to jangle. And 0-0 at halftime, we were deep into the second half. Gabriel Jesus scoring from an acute angle. Questions have to be asked of the Forest goalkeeper, Matt Turner. Of course, formerly a gunner, but that saw Arsenal take the lead. Bakayo Saka then added a slick second. Forest did pull one back late on, but it wasn't enough. A big, big win that for Arsenal. It's back-to-back victories since their return from that warm weather training camp over here in Dubai. I guess the shock of the night looked no further than Kennel. Worth Road, Luton Town 4, Brighton and Hove Albion nil. Elijah Adebayo with a hat-trick. He actually scored twice inside the opening three minutes, for goodness sake. Brighton simply not at the races, and we haven't said that often under Roberto De Serbi, but that was a chance in the evening for the Seagulls, the Hatters, the Mad Hatters, bouncing out 
of the bottom three, Everton back in there, courtesy of their goalless draw at Fulham. Of course, it could get a lot worse for Everton in the coming weeks. They've got that 10-point deduction. Yes, an appeal is in, but more sanctions could come as well. In terms of the other games last night, Crystal Palace 3, Sheffield United 2. Sheffield United looked absolutely doomed. A big win that for what had been a manager at Selhurst Park under pressure. Roy Hodgson, a lot of talk that maybe... Steve Parrish, the Crystal Palace chairman and owner, would look to replace him, but that's a big win for Palace. The other match last night, Newcastle repeating what they did to Aston Villa on the opening day. A big win, a convincing win. Aston Villa won. Newcastle 3, there ain't many teams that have gone to Villa Park this season and turned Villa over, but they did so last night, did the Magpies, Fabian Schar with a couple, and that's a big win for Eddie Howe's men. A big night of action a little later tonight, yet again, Premier League continues, looking forward to what it's got in store for us, of course, the biggie at Anfield, it is Liverpool against Chelsea, you've also got Manchester City against Burnley, we're expecting Erling Haaland to make a return. African Cup of Nations action, well, the big story overnight Morocco semi-finalists at the of course Qatar World Cup 2022 beaten knocked out uh, by South Africa 2-0 for the uh, South African nation and that's a big win Ashraf Hakimi actually missed a penalty in stoppage time which would have drew the game level Sofian Amrabat who's now on loan of course at Man United he was then sent off South Africa adding a second deep into stoppage time the shocks continue at the African Cup of Nations in terms of the Asian Cup well we've said Tara to Saudi Arabia they were beaten on penalties by South Korea it pitted Jurgen Klinsmann, boss of South Korea, against Roberto Mancini, the boss of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But it's South Korea who march on in the Asian Cup. And one final line for you, uh, I can tell you as well, Georgia, that uh, Turtle Hatton, Ron of Golf, he looks set to make that move over to Live Golf. We're expecting that to be announced at some juncture this week. £50 million is the reported fee that has seen Tyrrell Hatton leave the DP World Tour, leave the PGA Tour and head over to Live Golf, where he will link up with his old Ryder Cup mucker, John Ram. So that's a big story to keep an eye on. We're expecting more as well. Adrian Moronk, the pole, a man that Robbie Greenfield has had on his first tee podcast. We're expecting any day now confirmation that he too has made the move over to Live. One man who, at least for the time being, will not be making said move is Tommy Fleetwood that he did turn down an offer earlier this year that was presented to him over here in Dubai. He is happy with his lot. So that gets you bang up to date, Georgia, with all the sport from last night into today. Of course, a big night to look ahead to with all your footballing action a little later. For now, though, Georgia, back to you. Chris McCarty, thank you very much indeed. Uh, yeah, enjoy Off Script later on this afternoon. It is your drive time show. Uh, make sure you tune in from four. You'll have Chris, Robbie and Sonal to keep you company over your uh, much longer drive nowadays, of course, uh, due to the traffic. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.